Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Ooh, I heard the loons. I guess that means it's summertime. Or maybe it's the beginning of another Dark Poutine episode, and ugh, it is muggy and gross today. Yeah, it's kind of um, humid. Yeah. Oh, that's Matthew, by the way, and I'm Mike. Yes, this is still Matthew. Yeah, I screwed it up. I didn't do the normal that's intro. Okay. Shake it up a bit. Exactly. <laughs> Matthew's shaking. Shake and bake. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. The LG DP edition. The LG... Oh, oh boy. <laughs> that could mean a few things. Yeah, I didn't think of that until it came out of my mouth. Yeah, well, the people who know will know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not even dirty, really. No, it's not at all. No. On Sunday, November 13, 1988, a beloved 36-year-old high school teacher named Byron Carr was found by his family dead in the bedroom of his home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Byron had been strangled to death and then stabbed. His wallet had been stolen, and ominously on his wall, written in pen, were the words, I will kill again. Investigators revealed that Byron was a closeted gay man, and had been involved in a consensual sexual encounter with another man, still unidentified, prior to his death. It is presumed that it was this man who killed Byron. Byron's family is still waiting for justice. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 222, Murder on the Island, Who Killed Byron Carr? The story we are covering in this episode comes from good egg Carla McDonald Campbell, in our case suggestion thread in the Yumberyard, our Facebook group. To join more than 4,000 other good eggs and make your own case suggestion, please go to facebook.com groups slash Yumberyard. Now let's get to the story. The city of Charlottetown has been referred to as the birthplace of Confederation since the historic 1864 Charlottetown Conference, which led to the Confederation of Canada in 1867. 
Although the city is important to Canadian history and the capital of Prince Edward Island, it is still very much a small town today, with a population in the city proper of approximately 40,500 people, making Charlottetown in the tiniest province the smallest of all Canada's provincial capitals, excluding the capital cities of the Northern Territories, of course. They are much tinier. The province's entire population is tiny too, around 160,000 people. The census in 1986 puts the city's population at 15,776, so it is safe to say it was similar in 1988 when Byron Carr was killed. If there was anything like a gay community in the city at the time, it was very much underground. The 1980s, as I'm sure Matthew can attest, were not exactly woke times. Although what has been called gay liberation began almost simultaneously in larger cities in the United States and Canada in the 1970s, the attitudes towards homosexual people took a long time to make its way into small-town Canada, and it's still working its way there in many cases. In 2011, Tom W. Smith wrote in his paper for the University of Chicago Public Attitudes Toward Homosexuality that, quote, Public opinion on homosexual behavior is sharply divided and rapidly changing, end quote. He continued, quote, From 1973 through 1991, there was little change in public attitudes towards homosexual behavior. From two-thirds to three-quarters consistently said it was always wrong, while 10 to 15 percent considered it, quote, not wrong at all. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, on the 5th of February, 1981, Toronto police arrested almost 300 men in raids on four bathhouses. The following day, a crowd of 3,000 people took to the streets and marched on 52 Division, Police Precinct, and Queen's Park, smashing car windows and setting fires en route. The men were charged with being found-ins in a body house, which police defined as being any location where indecent acts took place. The vast majority of the charges were thrown out. Such raids continued over the next 20 years in Canada. Slurs were commonplace, as were ludicrous and fallacious concepts about homosexuality. These included the ridiculous belief held by some that homosexual men were also pedophiles. This line of backward thinking no doubt would have placed Byron Carr, an educator, even more firmly in the closet. Yeah, can I interject here? Yes, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about this, um, the bathhouse raids. For sure, yeah. Yeah, so this was actually a pivotal moment in Canadian history mm -hmm. and really a, a huge moment in the, the gay civil rights movement here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So just to explain a gay bathhouse to our listeners who might not know what it is. Yes. Essentially, you go to the place, you show your ID in the door to prove that you're of age. Mm -hmm. It's a private establishment, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's often saunas, pools, a number of private rooms where you can meet. Sure. Right? And it's where many men go to meet each other, mm -hmm. have, have sex and do other things watch a movie, like, like all kinds of stuff can go on there. So is it an actual bathhouse where somebody can go just for a spa if they want to go for a spa, or is it... Some of them, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. But I mean, the primary purpose is to meet other guys and have sex. Oh, okay. But, but there are whirlpools and saunas and, and pools and stuff like that. Sure. Right? Tanning beds sometimes, but it's the primary thing is like a sex thing. Okay. So, so a gay bathhouse is a private space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when this happened, if you have to stop and think about it, right? Yeah. In today's context, the Toronto police 
mm-hmm. led by staff inspector Donald Banks. Yes. Raided four bathhouses that night. Four bathhouses. So, so Banks got 200 police. Yeah. 200 police yeah. were involved. Mm-hmm. So 200 police go out to arrest gay men in a private property having a good time instead yeah. of doing some actual policing. Like catching people who are stealing things right. or killing each other. They effectively, they stormtrooped the bathhouses, mm-hmm. kicked down doors, smashed up. They caused thousands and th- like tens of thousands of dollars of damage. Yeah. Arrested anyone inside, all the while yelling homophobic slurs and brutalizing these men. These are the Toronto police. This, these are the Toronto police mm-hmm. pulling half-naked men out into the February cold, not even la- allowing them to grab their clothes. Wow. Right? This is not policing. Yeah. This is not protecting and serving. This is hatred yeah. and homophobia, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Right? So 306 men were arrested. That's the largest mass arrest in Canadian history so since, since the War Measures Act. These men, they were beating each other up or they were being violent or they were... <laughs> no. So none of those things were happening. Absolutely. No. It was men having a nice time, relaxing, having sex. Some of them might have even really liked each other, could, could yeah. have been in love. Yeah, it's, it's insanity. Right? Yeah. So, the, so, Mike, the largest mass arrest since the October crisis in 1970... So the largest mass arrest in Canada. Since the October crisis. Wow. Right? And, you know, it it was because they were having sex. So about 3,000 people marched the next day. In Toronto. In Toronto. Okay. um, To the legislature. Yeah. Demanding action. Mm -hmm. Because this wasn't a one-off thing. Police were harassing the, the community for years, right? Right. These raids happened in 1981. Mm hmm in 1967, Justice Minister Pierre Trudeau introduced a bill modernizing the reforms to the criminal code that decriminalized homosexual acts in Canada. Yeah. His famous quote is, there is no place for the state in bedrooms of the nation. Mm-hmm. These raids happened in 1981, so there was no crime happening. So there was a coin 50 years later that, that was released by the Canadian government. Yeah. That was celebrating sure. gay liberation in Canada. Yeah. But many of us found it a little bit self-congratulatory because, sure, that law changed, but nothing in reality changed. Right. Right? Yeah. So, and it was, it's been a long, hard fight, and it continues. And, and, and I think, you know, this was in Toronto, Mike, mm-hmm. right? This is the, the largest, probably most open city in the country. Well, that's, that's arguable that Vancouver is... Well, open. I mean, the, the largest gay community for sure. Sure, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think in that context, right, the story we're talking about today is just a few few years after these bathhouse raids. Yeah. Right? And I think you have to understand that context of how hard it was even in the largest city in the country. Mm-hmm. Now imagine being in a small town. 100%. Yeah. There are multiple reasons why we're doing this episode, and this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. There was no crime happening. Exactly. I want to go back to it. So what? What are the? What are the? <laughs> Mike is incensed. <laughs> what are? What are the Toronto police doing? It was like, can you imagine, Mike? What was their justification for the raids? I think it was um, the person who who did it was running something called the morality division. Okay, yeah. which is what? Well, not straight white people. So who imposes that morality yeah, on society? It's just insanity. Like, it's just absolute insanity. 
I can't even. I'm having trouble evening right now. I can't even. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in one of those small towns that we talked about, you know, mm -hmm. that we've talked about. In small towns, it was worse. It was worse yep. in my hometown. Uh, it still is. Mm -hmm. It still is. There are people, I get into it later on, yeah. but it still is. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk more about it later. Yep. In 1988, there was also the growing concern of AIDS and fear of those who may carry it, who publicly at least seemed more likely to be gay men. This further stigmatized an already marginalized population, setting progress back decades. Conversely, in the spring of 1988, British Columbia MP Sven Robinson, who served the Burnaby Douglas riding, came out as Canada's first openly gay member of Parliament. First elected to Parliament in 1979, Robinson was elected for an eighth term in 2000. A man named Andrew, a friend of Byron Carr's spoke with reporter Logan McLean for a 2021 article on this cold case. Andrew and Byron had become close while working at their teenage jobs at the Charlottetown Co-op grocery store. According to McLean's article, both men went to UPEI, after which both men became teachers. They had something else in common as well. Both were gay. Andrew told McLean that Charlottetown was not a safe place to be openly gay at the time. If you were gay in the city at that time, there were apparently only two options. The first was to keep your mouth shut about your sexual orientation and live your life in secret. Or, second, an option which many islanders took was to leave PEI altogether for a more progressive city. Quote, one of the two things. There was no middle ground, Andrew said. I think of how, not only how painful it is, but of those huge cover-ups within the gay community. The gay community were not out at all, and every gay person was covering up their own sexuality. I think it's important for the gay community to realize the horrific set of circumstances that gay people were in three decades ago, and how things have changed and are considered much better, with a bit more equality today. End quote. Yeah, things have changed, but it's certainly not universal. Mm -hmm. Right? Like... There's still a lot of problems. Like, what was it, a week before the police in Toronto caught Bruce, Bruce MacArthur? A they, week. A, a week before, yeah. It was a week before they caught him, that they, or a few days, that they got up in front of the cameras because the gay community was saying there's a serial killer, and they're like, they're there. No, there's not. Yeah. They were not listening. No. So, But it wasn't until a white gay man went missing that Bruce MacArthur was really looked yeah, at. Yeah, and we can... You know, over time, I've learned... So, can I just... Can I talk for a second? Absolutely. You are more than welcome so to talk. So, when Black Lives Matter started disrupting gay pride, mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can call me woke, but I'm not super woke, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm more center. But then I stopped and thought, Mike, and I realized that when the police did things like raid the gay bathhouses, yeah. way back then, mm -hmm. white gay men were treated as badly as First Nations people, yep. people of color. Yep, marginalized. So mm -hmm. there was this liberation movement that happened, but some people got left behind. Right. And, and these communities are still targeted. So if you're targeted and you're also gay, mm -hmm. then, and I started thinking about it, and I'm like... The one thing, the, the the march that took hold back in 1981, yep. in, everyone got together. The gays, the lesbians, 
mm-hmm. um, um, our black brothers and sisters, our trans brothers and sisters, everyone got together and it was big and everyone, everyone made the change. Yeah. Right. And then, so when I hear these stories, I realize, you know, what you just said, you know, it was men of color or immigrants that mm-hmm. were, that were being murdered. Sure being left behind again. Yeah. And it's over time I've come to understand why the Black Lives Matter movement did that. Mm-hmm. Because they're kind of because for a white gay cis man, I guess I'd be called, born a man and identifies as a man, having the the cops at the pride was a, a symbolic movement of hey, we're doing a lot better and it used to be worse. Mm-hmm. But for people who are still having a hard time, it's not a good thing. So it, it's, you know, I think you just have to like open your mind to these things and, and think it through. Yeah. Being open-minded is is what helps change happen. Yeah. And and the police, uh, you know, around the world, I mean, London, London, when I was in the London, they specifically um, went on a robust campaign to try to get people of the community to be the to police the community Mm -hmm. no matter what community it was because they understand the cultures and the differences and everything which is a smart thing to do yeah right and i think maybe the toronto police have been doing that and and yeah we've they've come a long way baby right yeah right they have um but there's definitely there's always room for improvement always byron carr was well liked and respected by his students and colleagues on a post on r slash PEI, a Reddit user named YYC David, who graduated from Montague High School in 1982, remembered Byron fondly as his teacher. He wrote, quote, He was my English teacher for grade 12, probably the best teacher I've ever had. My average in all courses jumped about 20% because my attitude changed about learning, end quote. On the same article, Circle Spin 12 commented, quote, My mom knew Byron. They rode horses together. And she even went to prom with him. Because of this, I've always been interested in his case too. She said he was always the nicest guy. Wish there could be justice, end quote. Other users on the post chimed in with similar sentiments. Murder is rare in Atlantic Canada, and even more so on Prince Edward Island. Here's what we know about Byron Carr's murder so far. On the morning of Sunday, November 13th, 1988, Byron's family became concerned when he did not show up for a get-together. Family members went to Byron's home, a cute little house at 24 Lapthorne Avenue in Charlottetown. The back door to Byron's house was ajar, and his beloved little dog was locked in its plastic pet carrier that Byron used as a kennel, a white Pet Voyager 300. They found Byron on his bedroom floor, deceased, and they called police. Byron's wallet was missing, nowhere to be found. The room looked as though it had been ransacked, like the killer was looking for something, perhaps they thought more valuables. There were no signs of forced entry, and the fact that Byron's dog was in his carrier revealed that, in all likelihood, Byron had willingly let his killer into his house. There were no signs on Byron's body that the teacher had put up any kind of physical struggle with his murderer. Byron appeared to have been strangled with a towel from his own bathroom, and the stab wound seemed to have occurred sometime after his death, as indicated by a lack of blood from that wound. An autopsy performed on Byron Carr's body revealed that he had died sometime on the morning of November 11, 1988, between 3 a.m. and 9 a.m. 
This meant that Byron had been dead as much as 31 hours before his family discovered him. The autopsy also confirmed that, that the stab wound was post-mortem by way of a long-handled kitchen knife and that Byron had indeed died by strangulation. No drugs were found in his system at the time of his death and police investigators didn't find any evidence to suggest that Byron had a drug problem. As the RCMP IDENT team went through Byron's home, they found a few unique items. Also found was a pair of Zeller's brand medium-sized bikini-style underwear made to fit a 29.5-inch waist. They believe these underwear to have been worn by the killer. DNA obtained from those underwear is believed to belong to that same person. Interestingly, also present on the underwear is DNA of a female. This has led police to the speculation that the owner of the underwear might be bisexual. Well, he's definitely not 100% gay because no respect, self-respecting gay man would wear Zeller's underwear. <laughs> I miss Zellers. <laughs> Don't you? Um, no. I, I, I can't. I think I shopped there when I was a kid with my mom. Yeah. I, I loved the skillet restaurant. It had a particular smell. I've talked about it before, but I loved the smell of the skillet. And then we'd go there for the fries that were fried so long that they were really hard. Did Zellers have a restaurant? Yeah, it was called the skillet. Okay. Yeah. Where was the blue light special? That was uh, Kmart. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A pair of rolled up socks were found in the kitchen garbage can in the home. Police believe that someone had worn the socks on their hands in an effort not to leave fingerprints as they cleaned up the crime scene. According to a CBC article, investigators were able to lift DNA from the socks. Forensic DNA science was in its infancy at the time, but the DNA profile obtained was preserved. That profile has since been put into Canada's national database, but to date there have been no matches to any. It does not match the DNA sample found in the underwear believed to have been the killer's, nor does it match Byron's or anyone else they've been able to connect to Byron Carr in any way. Also, according to CBC, quote, police do have DNA samples from the crime scene. However, those samples have deteriorated over the years making them unusable for testing using new forensic techniques that might provide new clues to the killer's identity, end quote. Ah, I know. That is such a shame. Yeah. Like, to have something that probably would solve it, but it, but it's degraded. To the point where they can't use it anymore. It must be so frustrating for yeah. the police, you know, when you have something in your hand that can't be, can't be used. Yeah. Also of huge curiosity was the penning of the note on Byron's wall. Again, written in pen, scrawled quickly, I will kill again. The note, although short, has a few unique features which may help identify Byron's killer. Each word starts with a capital letter. The writing leans toward the right, indicating perhaps a right-handed author. The dots above the eyes in will, kill, and again are tiny circles rather than simple dots. The A's in the word again also have a unique flourish, a top tail rather than a circle with a line like children are typically taught when learning to print. Like the sentiment itself, the lettering seems to have a juvenile and immature flair. As far as the timeline goes, Byron had gone out for dinner with a buddy that evening, returning home by 9.30pm. According to CBC, after that, Byron had friends over for coffee on the evening of November 10th. They left at 11.45 p.m. 
Byron then went out after midnight to meet up with some other friends in Charlottetown, visiting a number of bars before inviting two of them back to his house for drinks. After the bars closed at 2, they drank Seagram's VO, and those people left at around 2.45 a.m. It was believed for years that those were the last people to have seen Byron. From cbc.ca Witnesses say they saw two men behaving suspiciously outside Carr's house at 8.45 p.m. on the evening of November 11th, after Carr was killed. This was before his body was discovered. Between midnight and 2.30 a.m. on November 12th, neighbors heard Carr's dog barking, which was unusual, and there was a report of a vehicle leaving the area at high speed, end quote. Perhaps this might have been the killer and an accomplice returning to the crime scene supposedly looking for that underwear that they'd left behind and to otherwise attempt to clean up some of their mess. After that, in 1988 at least, the police seemed to hit a stone wall. People involved in Charlottetown's then deeply underground gay community were terrified. Many of them, still closeted, did not trust the police and were not willing to talk. Others feared retribution from the killer himself as there were rumors of a gay-killing serial murderer about at the same time. Some armchair detectives have invoked the specter of Toronto serial killer Bruce MacArthur, but as there is no evidence that MacArthur was even in PEI any time before 1995, when he actually visited, that theory doesn't seem to hold any water. As our good friend Robin Warder would say, the trail had gone cold. However, in September 2007, a dogged Charlottetown cop reopened the case then-constable and now chief of Charlottetown Police Department, Brad McConnell, wanted to take another look at Byron's murder and hopefully get some answers. McConnell's hard work was, in fact, able to uncover some new leads in the case, and we'll get to those right after this break. But first, here's a promo for a podcast that we think you might like. We met its host, Pia, at CrimeCon, and this podcast is called Crimes from the East. Here's their promo. Hey Alex, you want to hear about Ted Bundy for the three millionth time? Oh yes, I totally need that in my life. Hell no. I knew it. You know the one golden rule in true crime, right? Mm-hmm. The husband did it. Yeah, but have you heard about how the husband did it with a deadly cobra? <laughs> Where do you even find one of those? Well, find out on Crimes from the East. Come join Pia and I. Let's brew up some masala chai and listen to us talk about the twisted tales of murder and mayhem from South Asia. We are Crimes from the East, a South Asian true crime podcast with a little masala and spice. Namaste! Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. 
The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, your thoughts so far. I'm really glad that um, the police and PI are reopening this case. Mm -hmm. Um, And thankful for people like Chief Brad McConnell was his name, right? Yeah. Is his name? Yes. Are doing it. I I think maybe maybe to him, he's simply um, trying to solve a murder and wants justice for the family. Yeah. But to me, it's important beyond justice for Brian Carr, even though, of course, that's hugely important and I yeah, want justice yep. for him. Mm-hmm. But this is justice for the gay community as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've thought many a time, actually, that Canada almost needs a Truth and Reconciliation Commission on how society treated the LGBTQ community. I, I agree. Yeah. And there's There needs to be a harder look. Yeah, that. maybe not a commission because commissions often don't do anything. But and they're expensive as well. But, but Canada just needs to just has to be honest about like how because I was you know I came out in eighty six, right? Okay. I yep. came, I I came out in eighty six. So so you were two years away from graduation. So grade yeah, so ten. My first gay pride in Toronto mm-hmm. was five years after the raids. Wow. Right? So you went to Gay Pride the year you came out. Yeah, with heavy police presence, watching, not participating. Right. Right? So, um, you know, so I kind of caught in some ways the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in a really small town. I moved to London, Ontario when I was 16. Yeah. A lot of that was because I wanted to meet myself. And even though London's not huge, bigger community than when I was was in. Mm Mm-hmm level of acceptance right so to me it was never you know it's i'm lucky i didn't love living where i lived when i was young yeah because if i loved it and never wanted to leave but was gay it would have been a very hard life until i think it's changed strather i had its own pride down they're getting a little crosswalk which will probably be vandalized right but um but there's forward movement right Mm -hmm. but um yeah, so I came out at the end of it, and some older guys that I knew had the stories, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I've had bottles thrown at me. I've been called names. Mm-hmm. I've had many friends beaten up. Um, that's how I grew up. There was a man in town where I grew up, and I, I won't say his name because, you know, his name has been smeared enough in that town. Yeah. Um, he's since passed away. But I remember as... As kids, he was sort of a pariah in town because he had gone to jail for commission of homosexual acts. Mm. And children and adults alike made fun of this guy. Yeah. You know, he did not have an easy life. His name was in the phone book and people would call him up and make fun of him. Um, Kids, I'm ashamed to say I'm a kid who did that kind of stuff. Mm. Like I look back on it and it was just, that was the, the norm. Yeah. I'm disgusted by it. Like just appalled by the, the behavior. He wasn't somebody who seemed to have had a lot of breaks in life. Right. You know, he lived in a little tiny place mm. and, and all that kind of stuff and sort of on 
the far end of town, the other side of the tracks, if you were. So he didn't have the wealth and the, or education to escape, no. to escape from where he was. No, he was stuck there. Which many, see, I'm very lucky I got the education and the money mm -hmm. to, to, to move to where I wanted to go, right? And one of the saddest things that I remember is people making fun of him and he would sort of go along with it. Because I guess that's how he dealt with it. It's a way of self-defense, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Keep it calm. Keep it light so you don't get killed or beaten up. Yeah. Nobody ever heard him as far as I know. As far as I know. Like that would have, that was crossing a line for me. If he had stood up though and didn't yeah. go along with it and pushed Maybe. back, that's probably why he was doing that. Oof. Right? Yeah. It's just ugly to because think. It, it would have escalated it. Right? Yeah. So he had to live that way. I'm certain that a lot of small towns had a person like that, but yeah. Yep. <sighs> if I could go back and give the guy a hug now, I would. <laughs> I would totally go and just say, hey, you know, the way you were treated was really wrong and you deserve love too. I just, I would really want to hug that guy. You can hug me. I do hug you. <laughs> <laughs> The deputy chief of the Charlottetown Police Department at the time, Richard Collins, spoke to CBC about reopening Byron's case in October of 2007. Quote, We are launching a full review of the Byron Howard Carr file, he said. I can't indicate how many people we are looking at. All I can say is people that we are interested in, to our knowledge at this point in time, are currently alive and well, and we will seek them out whether they are on Prince Edward Island or off Prince Edward Island. We will be continuing to aggressively at this point in time to deal with identified persons of interest and either link or eliminate them to this file, said Collins. Constable Brad McConnell talked about reopening cold cases with the Guardian newspaper. Quote, It's not something haphazardly done, he said. There's a process which you follow. A lot of that involves reviewing old files, lab reports, witness statements. It's a considerable file. Regarding Byron Carr's sexuality that the teacher had closely guarded during his life, McConnell told CBC, quote, He was outed by his death, said McConnell. That sensationalism at the time, when we were living in a different time in our culture, caused people some apprehension to want to get involved. I personally find that disappointing. Over the years, people had spoken in whispers that perhaps Byron Carr had died during rough sex play that involved asphyxiation. Constable McConnell addressed that in a separate CBC interview. Quote, It's been widely speculated in the past that this was an accident, death by misadventure, McConnell said. We want to make it clear that this is a murder. End quote. This is a good cop. Yeah. He gives a crap. Mm -hmm. He has a head on his shoulders. He cares what people think happened. Yeah. He Kudos cares. To him. He's cutting through all that crap. Yeah. And he is... You know, I th this is a good police in modern society. I, I wish we could highlight more stories like this. Yeah. Where there is a cop. I mean, this guy, he was a constable when he started investigating this. Yeah. He went through, became, a, uh, I think, then a corporal, a sergeant, then the deputy chief, and now is the chief of the yeah. Charlottetown Police Department. And he cares about everyone in his community. Yeah. He's not hand-selecting, Right. Right. Yeah, because we were left out for so long. Mm -hmm. The initial investigation had developed a long list of suspects and people of interest in Byron's murder. Some had been eliminated, but this list in 2007 was still far too long. 
McConnell wanted to narrow the list even further so he and his fellow investigators could focus their efforts more efficiently. The decision was made to release the photo taken of the I Will Kill Again message written in pen at the crime scene, which police believed to have been written by the killer. From PEICrimestoppers.com, quote, Although the wording of the crime scene message had been previously released to the public in November of 1988, this is the first time we have released an actual photo of the message. The message was located on a wall within the victim's residence and is believed to have been left by the person responsible for the death of Byron Carr. The message has been examined by experts in the field of handwriting and printing analysis. However, we hope by releasing it to the public, someone may recognize the characteristics or style of the print letters within the message and be able to associate them to a person. And we'll put pictures of these on our website. They offered a $2,000 reward to anyone who provided information that would lead to the arrest of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Byron Carr. Seeing the story in the news again nagged at the conscience of one PEI man. He had a secret that he'd kept for years, afraid to report it. But seeing stories about Byron Carr's slaying on the news helped him to make a decision, so he came forward to Charlottetown Police. He had important information. The man said that he'd seen Byron on the night of his death after the 2.45 a.m. departure of his friends. Byron, it appears, had gone out in his white 1987 Ford Tempo. He had driven the five minutes or so to a popular cruising spot, the Queen Square area of Charlottetown, a place gay men commonly frequented. Carr had seen the man walking and had picked him up and driven him home to Sydney Street. Byron then drove off and the friend watched as he left. The last time Byron was seen by the friend, he'd stopped and was speaking to a younger man on a bicycle just a block away near the corner of Richmond and Prince Streets. After what appeared to be a brief conversation, Byron had driven off and the bicycle appeared to follow him. It was after 3 a.m. and the timeline of the murder had to change a bit, making it no earlier than, say, 3.30. If true, this would be huge. Police had struggled to believe the man at first, but after administering a polygraph, which the man passed, they believed him. Perhaps the man on the bicycle was Byron's killer, but who was he? I pondered the possible motivation for the witness waiting 20 years before coming forward. Perhaps he was afraid of being treated like a suspect in Byron's death, among other unknown factors. I'm fairly confident in assuming that some of the questions that the witness would have been asked during the polygraph would have been, did you cause the death of Byron Carr? Or do you know who caused the death of Byron Carr? The motivation um, for waiting a long time to speak is kind of clear in my head anyway. Yep. So if you're a gay man who's in a gay cruising area in a small town in an anti-gay culture just a few years after what happened in Toronto, yeah, <laughs> you, you would just be putting a target on your back for the police. 100%. Why were you there? Are you a fag? You know, he'd literally, he would, that, that word probably would have been used okay. by the police for him because that's what the police did. Yeah. Um, I've had friends that were called that by the, by the police, not necessarily use police, but who knows. Right. But that's what you would expect back then. Okay. So it, it probably wasn't even him being worried that he'd be caught, like assume that he did it. Mm -hmm. He'd be outed. He'd be questioned of why he was there. He could... And then he'd just be, he'd be targeted in a small town for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody knows 
from those small towns where the cruising areas are, like the cities. Uh, in Halifax, it was Citadel Hill. I, it still may be. I don't know. but And those places exist. Why? Because nobody has anywhere else to go. Right. Right, back then. Yeah, there was no other way to meet people like you. Right. And, you know, if you're out in the wilderness somewhere, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, because cops used to go into hotels and 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 arrest people into private homes. This way you have a place to run. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and it's sad that, it's sad that you need to think about a place to run. Yeah. Like that to me just is like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I never... That, that, yeah. That never wow. occurred to you, did it? No. Yeah. Another anonymous man came forward with a secret that had been eating at him for 20 years. Only a couple of months after Byron's murder, the man had gone cruising in the same area of Charlottetown in which Byron had been last seen alive. The man had picked up another young man who he presumed to be in his late teens and brought him home. There they engaged in consensual sex. But afterward, the younger man had become violent. The younger man had grabbed a kitchen knife and demanded the homeowner's wallet, threatening to stab him. The young man said he'd, quote, done it before. The younger man then fled the residence. Under hypnosis, the victim of the robbery provided police with the detail needed to develop a composite sketch of the young man, which they released in May of 2008. According to CBC News, quote, The person of interest was described as a white male about 19 years old of thin build and average height with auburn brown hair. According to the Saltwire News site, then Sergeant McConnell said, quote, We're not saying that the two incidents are related, but because of the similarities as investigators, we would be remiss if we didn't try to identify this person in the composite sketch and have him eliminated or included in our investigation. When asked why the man who still lived in PEI at the time had not come forward earlier, McConnell said, quote, This was a secret that he had, and like most gay men at the time, not wanting to be outed or exposed as being gay or involved in that kind of behavior, he never reported the incident. End quote. In September 2009, police came up with another possible lead and were looking for a man named George Smith, who had reported his car stolen only nine hours before Byron's murder. Smith lived at 154 Richmond Street, close to where Byron had been last seen. They wanted to pursue the possibility of links between the theft and Byron Carr's death. The problem is, they couldn't find George Smith, and somehow, the police record of the car theft has been lost. In November of 2009, police released a photo of the skimpy underwear that they'd obtained DNA samples from. In the photo, the underwear is displayed on a black mannequin to give an idea of the smaller stature and build of the presumed killer. The hope was that perhaps the female whose DNA was on the underwear as well as that of the suspect might recognize the underwear and come forward. In a 2013 interview with CBC's Sally Pitt, John Carr, Byron's brother, was asked what he would like the public to know about Byron. John said that his brother was, quote, a really good person. John went on to say, Quote, every year, some of his former students contact me to say hello and to say that they're still remembering him. Many of them tell that he changed their lives for the good, end quote. Carr said that although the past 25 years has been difficult, his family was tough and that they'd stayed together as a family. 
He said he thinks that the whole thing has strengthened the family bonds, that even though time has passed, although thoughts of his brother and his murder are with him often, every November 11th, the whole thing comes back into sharper focus. When asked what it would mean if there were an arrest and charges in Byron's murder, John said, quote, We don't expect justice at this point in time. We just want closure, end quote. He then recalled something that his mother had said at the cemetery on the day when they buried Byron. She said, quote, It's really not over until we know what happened and why, end quote. In another CBC interview, John Carr implored anyone who knew anything at all to please come forward with even the smallest iota of information. Quote, it doesn't have to be major television-style solve-the-crime type piece of information. It's only a tiny piece of information which may lead to conclusion of this, he said. That same year, police released more information. They believed there was strong evidence of an accomplice after the fact in Byron's murder. They'd thought that for a while. Two witnesses who were not connected to each other came forward to police with information. The first was in 2008 and another in 2012. Both claimed they knew a man who'd confessed to involvement in the death of Byron Carr. Not as the killer, mind you, but as the person who had returned to the crime scene with the killer in the failed search for the pair of underwear. Police said that the stories included details that could only be known by someone who had been in the house before the police had arrived and was involved in the crime somehow. The second man, who police knew but have not publicly named, died in 2003. He was 27 years old at the time of Byron's murder and had lived in Charlottetown. He was a recent parolee with a violent criminal past. He had been on a short list of suspects that investigators had developed in 1988. The DNA on the socks believed to have been used in the crime scene cleanup did not match this man, nor the DNA found in the underwear. It was out of what the police called juvenile frustration that the killer or his accomplice left the I will kill again note, then stabbed the already deceased Byron Carr and did other unnamed juvenile acts around the crime scene. Speculation is that they might have done something else with Byron's body or something else that cops are using as holdback evidence. The brief police profile of Byron Carr's killer is that he was a male, aged between 15 and 25. He lived what they called a high-risk lifestyle, was bisexual, probably had previous low-level criminal convictions, and that he lived in Charlottetown. Police also believe that someone knows who the killer is, and that they may have been afraid to come forward sooner due to fear of being outed or fear of the person involved. There have been suspects named over the years. One is an alleged serial killer named Peter Dale MacDonald, who'd grown up in PEI. He was a troublemaker from an early age. He was right in the sweet spot age-wise and fit the police's profile of possible suspects in Carr's murder very early on. He'd been involved in drugs and prostitution in Charlottetown. He's been suspected in and even charged with a number of murders and was convicted of his first one in 2004. The body of 63-year-old James Jimmy Thomas Campbell was found in a Parkdale apartment on April 29, 2000. Known to frequent area bars including the Gladstone Hotel and the Dufferin Gate, police said James Campbell was strangled by his killer in the 99 Tyndall Avenue apartment. They had met in a park, went back to the apartment, and had sex. DNA later placed Peter Dale McDonald at the crime scene with Campbell. From 2004 court documents, quote, There was evidence of a sexual encounter between the appellant, McDonald, and the deceased prior to the murder. 
The DNA testing that showed a mixture of the deceased semen and the appellant's saliva on the bedsheet suggested that the appellant performed an act of fellatio on the deceased. The Crown did not suggest that this act could be non-consensual. End quote. However, evidence showed that things had escalated and that Campbell had then been, quote, strangled from behind with the killer kneeling on the naked deceased's back during the strangulation, end quote. The similarities to Byron's murder are inescapable. Peter Dale MacDonald, who was 42 at the time of the 2000 murder, was charged in the unrelated death of a sex worker named Michelle Charette in 2000 in Windsor, Ontario. DNA evidence was collected and cleared him of that murder. MacDonald, however, was recharged with Charette's murder and pleaded guilty to manslaughter in her case on February 23, 2012, after DNA on a cigarette butt found near Michelle's body placed him at the scene after the improvement of DNA detection technology. He was sentenced to life for the first crime, so it's probably unlikely that he will ever get out. McDonald was also charged with killing Julianne Middleton, 23, Virginia Coote, 33, and Darlene McNeil, 35, whose bodies were found in Lake Ontario in Toronto's West End between 1994 and 97. But the charges were dropped in 2010 for lack of evidence, and there was, according to the Crown, no good chance of conviction. I'm fairly certain that police would have tested McDonald's DNA against that found in Byron Carr's home if it was possible. Right. I don't know, like, if the sample was still viable for them to test at that point. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, this guy... There's so many similarities. There are so many similarities. The fact... There's not a lot of serial killers, I don't think, that have come from Prince Edward Island. I really don't. I don't think PEI is a breeding yeah, ground. I don't think PEI is pumping out the serial killers. No. Right. So if one person who was in and around that scene at that time ended up being a serial killer, yeah. perhaps that's a good reason that cops want to strongly look at this person, especially when he goes on to commit a murder with very, very similar yeah. uh, situation, situation, yeah. like consensual sex first. And then kill. And then murder after. Mm -hmm. And strangulation mm -hmm. from behind. Yeah. With some sort of object or yeah. probably, maybe a towel. Maybe it, they didn't say what it was that killed yeah, this other guy. But, you know, or it could have been just whatever's, whatever's handy. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it's really interesting that, um, this guy, uh, did these things and is the type of person that he is. I mean, he, he killed both men and women. So there is that component yeah. of bisexuality in there as well. Yeah. Did he still wear Zeller's underwear? <laughs> I don't know. If he was wearing Zeller's underwear, yeah, I would have he, clinched it he's right the there. guy. <laughs> this leaves Byron's murder as still unsolved. Anyone with information regarding this crime, no matter how insignificant it may seem, is asked to call the Bell Alliance-sponsored Byron Carr Hotline, 1-877-566-3952, or PEI Crime Stoppers, 1-800-222-TIPS. Again. Byron Carr was last seen alive at approximately 3 a.m. Friday, November 11, 1988. 
which was the beginning of a long Remembrance Day weekend. He was driving a 1987 white Ford Tempo near the corner of Richmond and Prince Streets. He was found dead in the bedroom of his home at 24 Lapthorne Avenue, Charlottetown, 31 hours later. Time of death was determined to be between 3 and 9 a.m., November 11th. Evidence at the scene indicated his death followed a sexual encounter with another male. Carr was strangled, stabbed, and the killer left a note saying, I will kill again. Matthew, that note, the I will kill again note, mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that at all? Did you read about that? Yes. Uh, what are your, they, so the police say that it was a juvenile act, uh, that note. Was a, was a juvenile act saying, I will kill again. Yeah. Because of other things that this person and possibly another person did in the home after the murder. Yeah. Don't get it why they, you know, they say it was frustration because they couldn't find the underwear that they were looking for. Right. So they're looking for the underwear and out of frustration they write, I will kill again. I don't understand that. I think there's something that the police aren't telling us that's hold back evidence that perhaps yeah. uh, they need to, uh, that. They uh, need to hold on to it in order to. Right. Yeah. That would make more sense to us somehow. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it's just not connecting up why some, unless somebody, the person is a moron. <laughs> right. I will kill again. Well, they probably are. Well, they probably, well, they are because they murdered somebody. Mm -hmm. That is a moron in, yeah. my, in my mind. Yeah. But, um. Yeah, it's, I just, I'm picturing this small city, small town, really, right? Mm-hmm. 88, murder like that, and I will kill again. It doesn't, it just doesn't fit. The picture doesn't fit the book, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> so, completely unrelated and not connected. While I was researching this case, I recalled a murder that occurred in my hometown, Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, in 1992. So four years after Byron Carr's murder. And I was living in uh, Bridgewater at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so bear with me. You'll see some relevant parallels as I explain this case. So I couldn't for the life of me remember the name of the man killed, although I used to serve him coffee every day at the candy center on King Street where I worked. And... Um, did John Candy own the Candy Center? John Candy did not own the Candy Center. It was a, a man named Philip who owned the Candy Center. Okay. And Philip was gay. Okay. So, but anyway, that's a long story. That's another sort of aside. Okay. I could remember the name of the killer well enough because I'd played ball hockey against him when I was in the Bridgewater Junior Fire Department. He was a member of the Riverport Junior Fire Department's team, and his name was Charles Wicker, and he was a big aggressive, broody guy, and we feared him mm. on that team. He was the guy that we really feared. And when I'd heard he was charged with murder, though, I was really surprised. It's like, okay, yeah, he's big and broody and crazy, but I didn't think he'd actually kill somebody. So some friends came through in a big way when I asked about the events on Facebook. Uh, my friend Stacy Rutterham, and she's a longtime listener as well. Hi, Stacy. Uh, she was first to come up with the name Joseph Lorando, and he went by John. And that's why I was kind of like, what? why doesn't that make sense? But I remember him going by John, and other people confirmed that he went by John. 
And he was a really gentle guy, slightly built with a mustache, long hair, although he was balding on top. Mm -hmm. And he was a musician. Right. I remember him being like really into music. And my friend Tim Fairfield backed that up saying John worked at the music store in the mall and that Tim bought many sets of guitar strings from him and his first guitar strap that he still has. And so the murder was a really big deal in Bridgewater. It was the first one since the town had been incorporated in 1899, the first murder. So John had been found on the doorstep of a trailer in a local trailer park. And my friend Brian Plunkett reminded me that it happened around Halloween. And neighbors thought John's body was some kind of macabre Halloween display. Horrible. I got a ton more of information about the events thanks to longtime friend of the family, retired reporter and newspaper photographer, Linda Mason. She kindly reached out to retired Staff Sergeant GIS plainclothes section, Al Cunningham. I remember Constable Cunningham. We used to have a nasty name for him. We had a police officer named Cunningham uh, where I grew up as well. There you go. Well, anyway, Linda forwarded me Sergeant Al Cunningham's memories of the crime. And he wrote, John was stabbed 13 times while sitting in this car in Bob Richards' trailer park off North Street. The person who killed John was Charles Zwicker. This occurred October 31st, and Zwicker was dressed in black to roll John for his wallet after they drank a six-pack of beer. John, who was gay, thought he was, quote, in love at the time, but Charles was not. When Charles was stabbing John, he accidentally stabbed his own forearm when Charles was trying to use the knife to punch holes in John's body. I remember every part like it was yesterday. He had Joel Pink very famous lawyer in Halifax, who I recall not fondly. And the statement took three hours and 15 minutes at the Bridgewater police station, Mm. end quote. So the rumor was that John had, quote, hit on Charles. Mm -hmm. This was what we were hearing around town in the car where they sat drinking and that Charles killed him for it, Mm -hmm. reacted badly and killed him for it. I remember being surprised at learning that John was gay. I didn't know. Um, He never talked about it to me anyway. Bridgewater also, as I mentioned, was not a safe or tolerant place to be out back in those days. Uh, I know of many people who have over the years come out. Uh, There are others I'm aware of who still fear for various reasons the reactions to that kind of personal knowledge coming out even now. So I can see how that would have led to silence uh, in information coming about from John Carr or from Byron Carr's killing. So yeah, it's weird that I had sort of a parallel case where I knew both the killer and uh, the victim. It's very strange. That's very strange. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. I've thought about covering that case from top to bottom, but I don't think we have to now. I think this is, this will cover it. Yeah. Um, Because this whole thing really leaves me kind of like thoughtful about, well, what you went through. Yeah. As a kid and what people in my hometown went through. Mm. And I feel terrible for the way they were treated. It wasn't fun. No, (laughs) I feel terrible. It wasn't fun. It was hard. I, I can remember, I knew I was gay at a very young age. Mm-hmm. I can remember once being told that 
uh, all gays were pedophiles. And I can remember at 12 years old, and I didn't quite understand what that meant, but I knew it was a monster. 12 yeah. years old, lying in bed, crying. Because you... I didn't want to be a monster. Yeah. Well, you're not a monster, Matthew. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's sort of the shit you have to go through. Yeah, for sure. Back then when there wasn't any openness. So, like, we've moved on so much in mm -hmm. so many communities. Not all of them, though. Not all of them, though. And um, this can go back so easily, right? It can, it, it has to be protected. Um, luckily, you know, I was looking at Canada is one of the most um, accepting countries in the world mm -hmm. um, for the LGBTQ community. A lot of the memes now are uh, uh, obviously things about Pride Month. Yeah. Um, and I didn't choose this episode because it was pride month it was just it just happened it just happened and uh yeah it's really interesting i, I i'm watching these memes and you know how you make jokes about it all the time how companies will change to be woke in june kind of thing with mm -hmm. rainbows and unicorns and all that kind of stuff and then they go back to their usual thing yeah. in in july but there's speaking of intolerance there's memes about the Middle East right mm -hmm. now and how Middle East, the Middle Eastern arms of branches of these companies are not yeah. changing. Well, of course they're not. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I'm the marketing director of some brands. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do it with my brands because I want to show support. Mm -hmm. So often there's a gay person behind it or an ally actually behind it. It's not just, and and I can remember when the first companies ever directly advertised to the gay community and it felt like acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. And actually the first ads were very risky for some companies to do because they could have been boycotted by others. Sure. Right? Um, Subaru. Mm -hmm. Absolute Vodka. Okay. You know, they did it before there was a proven, you know, you're going to get a return on investment. It was actual support for community and, 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 and gay publications. So does it feel like it's actual support now? Or is it just people like, well, everybody else is doing it, so we'd better do it too? Well, for people who don't like it, mm -hmm. I say, would you rather have them not? Would you, have, would you rather have lots of companies just not saying anything about pride? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Fine. But, you know, when, when I walk past the Fairmont Hotel and they're flying the flag. Yeah. I know, hey, that's kind of cool. And if they're doing that, then hopefully they're treating their employees the right way. Like that's a friendly place, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Per perhaps. You know, I, I don't, I'm in marketing, so I see nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, I'd, I'd rather it be done than not done. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Yeah. And that's it for this episode that I found actually quite moving and disturbing. Uh, Dark Poutine episode 222, Murder on the Island, Who Killed Byron Carr? That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. 
Well, all right. Let's listen to our first voicemail. I'm still emotional from the episode, but what this <laughs> might this might help us to uh, sort of calm down. Ah, oh, hey guys, it's uh, Great Big Pete calling from Ottawa, tornado capital of Ottawa or Canada or whatever. Anywho, I just heard your episode about the uh, murder in Saint Pierre and Miquelon, and I'm super excited because guess what? I'm going to be going there this summer. Anyways, I'll be sure to take pictures and stuff like that, and I'll maybe record like a little bit of audio around the guillotine. If I can get the sound of it going, I will. And uh, this part of the message, you don't have to play this part on the show, but this is for Steve. Hey, Steve. Are you a good boy? Are you the good boy? Yes, you are. You're the good boy. Yes, you are. Good boy. Yes. Hey, can you tell your, your papa to go shit in the hat? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> I love Great Big Pete. Great he's, Big Pete. He's well, uh, yeah. If if every call is going to be like that, Great Big Pete will become a regular <laughs> a regular caller on and the show. And we're totally leaving that part in. Yeah. Oh no. There's no way I'm removing that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yes, and please send some photos from your trip. Yeah, we. I'm really curious about Saint Pierre Miquelon. It's a place that I do want to travel to, and. Uh, yeah, that episode was weird too. But uh, yeah, there's been a. I've been finding some really great stuff. Uh, let's let's move on to our next voicemail. Uh, who knows who this is from? Hi, Mike and Matthew. I'm a longtime listener, but a first time caller, and I'm just calling to share a bit of a legal perspective on the discussion about self-induced extreme intoxication that you guys chatted about at the end of this week's episode. I'm a law student at Osgoode Hall Law School, and I'm also a survivor of sexual assault myself. Um, And coming from that perspective, I want to set the record straight a little bit on what this decision means, because I absolutely understand why survivors and advocates for survivors and people like the two of you would be really scared and concerned about the kinds of headlines that are coming out about this decision. But to be Abundantly clear, this ruling absolutely will not excuse assault of any kind just because the perpetrator was drunk. Um, The level of intoxication that you'd need to achieve this kind of defense is one that would be almost impossible to achieve by alcohol alone. Um, For example, in in the case, it's called R.V. Sullivan. Um, The young man had a history of mental illness. He took an overdose of a prescription medication that was known to cause hallucinations as a side effect because he was trying to commit suicide. Um, His attempt was unsuccessful, but the overdose caused him to have these crazy hallucinations and delusions, and he nearly murdered his mother because he thought she was an alien. Um, So in general, it's, it's... a crazy amount of drugs and somebody's unique brain chemistry that results in this outcome that really nobody could have predicted. Um, And it's extremely tragic. So truly, it would be almost impossible to achieve with just alcohol. And this ruling won't be kind of a get out of jail free card for people who've gotten drunk and committed any assault or a sexual assault. It will also be really expensive to prove, and it's a really high bar to prove, like you need a lot of experts and a lot of evidence um, about your own medical history and that kind of thing. So um, I hope that survivors and people who are worried about this ruling will feel a little bit more at ease because it's just truly so unlikely to ever come up in a situation you're in. And for those it does come up for, it's just so sad. 
Anyways, um, I appreciate your nuanced discussion and all of the empathy you share for survivors. Um, keep doing what you're doing. Great podcast. And go shit in your hats. Bye. So isn't that great? She has the most informed conversation with us and then tells us to go shit in our hat. <laughs> I, know, I love it. I actually can sleep better. Yep. Have, with what she just told me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that, was, that was bothering. Th honestly, thank you. I mean, we read, I read about it, but I mm -hmm. don't understand the nuances and the explanation was really good there. It was awesome. Um, and it makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. And th that's why we, when we have these discussions, uh, we, we want people to call in. Uh, don't call in with every mistake that we make <laughs> because at that point, at that point, it, like it, perineum. Yeah. Well, no, that one was funny. <laughs> your perin, your perineum, perineum arch. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but yeah, if it's something that will help inform us in a better way in moving forward, especially when it's a legal thing like that, we're not lawyers. We're not journalists. In fact, I'm just a dum-dum. Well, speak for yourself. Okay. Matthew is not a dumb dumb. <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, uh, if, if there is something that, uh, we need some education on. Help us. Help us. But at the same time, <laughs> there, I've had people call in and, and try to inform us about things that are maybe not okay <laughs> to do. So maybe censor yourself. Think about it before you. If you're nice, do it. Yeah. If if it's going to be nice, if you're being kind and, and helpful. And helpful, do it. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to be a jerk, don't. And just trying to prove a point. And yeah. Know, if you want to just hammer home a point, I'm not interested. Because we have the off button. Yeah. We have this amazing, <laughs> amazing thing called delete. But that was really helpful. Thank you. I actually had to block a caller on our voicemail who was Aww. calling in with rude things. Aww. Yeah. Like I should have just saved all the voicemails and played them on the show. Or let me have it. Let me have <laughs> it. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you. Even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So we don't have any Patreon patrons this oh, week. No. Yeah. And uh, looks like we've lost a few. Mm. I It's very clear what's going on. The economy is not in the best way and people are looking at ways to uh, maybe save a couple of bucks. So 100% yeah. understand. 100% understand. However... <laughs> you know, you know how it is. It's tough. It is tough. It's it's like, oh, okay. So less less uh Hey, if five thousand of you out there give a dollar. Do a dollar a month each. Right? Then it's good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would actually help a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna start calling you all individually. <laughs> Please. Oh yeah. <laughs> I wish we had all everyone's number. Uh no. <laughs> I probably everyone doesn't really want boop, boop, us. Boop, boop, boop. Hi, it's Matthew and Steve. <laughs> Would you like to donate? Yeah. Well, anyway, we did have some donut money donors. Yay. First up, 
we have Taylor Pender. Hello, Taylor Pender. And Taylor says, specifically for Jellyfilled, if you're into that, Mike and Matthew, I'm slowly closing the gap between the episode I'm listening to and the most recent recording. Although I still consider myself a time traveler since I'm currently in March 2022. Thanks for being delightful, Eggs. Kindly go shit in your hat, Taylor P. Well, you only have a few months to, to catch up, which yeah. is great. Thank Getting you, there. Taylor. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And yes, I will eat any sort of donut. I um, do like me a jelly filled. Yeah. Uh, my favorite, though, is the custard filled Boston cream. I love, 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 love. Do you really? Oh, they are my f- absolute 100% I favorite. I like jelly. For the cream filled ones, I prefer the jelly ones. Have you ever gone to Cardam's Donuts downtown? We're, we're not doing an ad for Cardam's Donuts, but have you ever gone to Cardam's? If you'd like to send us money for mentioning yeah, it, exactly. we will take it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Cardam's, if you want to send us donuts, I would love some Cardam's Donuts. I think I had maple with bacon from them once. They, they are such good donuts. They are really good. They do fancy donuts. And the one that I really like, it's, it's an Earl Grey. Yeah, that one's so oh, good. Mike. It is amazing. Oh my God. So now I want to drive down to Cardamus Donuts. <laughs> I think I might do that this week. Uh, yeah, let's do some donuts at some point. And we have to do a photo shoot for Patreon. Yes. Because our new, um, our new, we have. The new we're, system. We're changing up the tiers on Patreon because people didn't seem to want to have calls from us or from me or whatever, or, or any of that kind of stuff. So. People at the $10 tier are now going to get the same thing that people at $5 get, magnet and a couple of stickers, but they're also going to get a official Dark Protein fan club card. Which is kind of cool. Which is kind of cool. And then people at $25 and above are going to get all that, plus... Plus? Wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. A signed photo of... Matthew, myself, and Steve. Steve. So we're gonna we're gonna do that for twenty five dollars. You know what we should do? We should just sell those. We we should <laughs> no, we should book one of those glamour shots at Zellers. And, I, they don't have Zellers, but and, and of me and Steve and getting like our hair coiffed and everything and do a glamour shot of the three of us. Yeah, with like, a soft lens. Maybe wearing like weird clothing and stuff, yeah. like very seventies with a soft lens and some roses in the corner. Would Steve sit still? Um, you can coax him. So you know the good shots I have where mm-hmm. he's looking at me. I'm holding food in the air. Okay. Yeah, but we could we could sit him with us, kind yeah, of thing. He, yeah. Yeah. You, you let them, like, you can't just instantly take a photo. You have to, like, let them, like, calm down. For a while. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Or I could drug them. But anyway, so those are the new tiers just on do. Patreon. We do have another Donut Money donor, and his name is Freddie Madrano. Thank you, Freddie. And Freddie says, enjoy some mochi donuts, courtesy of Best of Arlington TX on Instagram. At Best of Arlington TX on Instagram. Thank you. Thank you so much, Freddie Madrano. That's such a cool name, Freddie Madrano. I know. It, it, it's, I was it thinking that. Like, it's like in a 50s movie, right? Freddie Madrano. He's like a crooner. Yeah. We forgot to or say. Or a detective. We forgot to do uh, where Taylor Pender is from. Oh, are we doing that? Yeah, let's go back. Okay. So, so where on earth is Taylor Pender from? We know Freddie is from Texas. We'll get into that. But uh, Taylor, oh, okay. Where is Taylor Pender from, Matthew? 
Bearsville, New York. Bearsville, New York. And what does Taylor do in Bearsville? He wrestles the bears. Wrestles the bears. That's good. Freddie Madrano obviously is from Arlington, Texas. <laughs> because, well, maybe, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not. Mm. However, what do you think Freddie, with the coolest name ever, Freddie Madrano, what does he do there in Arlington, Texas? Detective. Oh, cool. Detective. He's like Philip Marlowe. Like he's De- a noir. Detective Freddie Madrano. Yeah, totally noir, right? Noir. He comes in and he yeah. smokes. Yeah. And, and everything. Has, has the fedora. Every room he enters is in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything just turns Freddie black Madrano. and white with Freddie around, but but it, not that like it was a tough day on the mean streets of the city. But Freddie Madrano was out to get the killer. Exactly. Thank you for protecting Arlington, Freddie Madrano. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/DarkPoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So until we return, don't forget to be a good egg. And not a bad apple. Thanks for listening to us. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate your ears. (laughs) Make sure you clean them. Not too deeply with a Q-tip. No. Anything bigger than an elbow is too big. (laughs) What the hell is that from? I don't know. My mom. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.